Well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. Way to go. You made it to church. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online around our country and world. Always glad when you can join us. We know that this is your connection to our church and ours to you as well. And happy Easter, everybody. I do especially want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time. If it's been a while since you've been in church or if this is your very first time, I just invite you to relax. Just really sit back, relax, and take it in. And to get things started today, I want to raise a question for everybody at all of our campuses just to think about today as we talk a little bit. The question is this, what do you believe about Jesus? Just think about that for a few minutes or a few seconds. What do you believe about Jesus? I believe, believe, you know, I assume most of you believe something about him or you wouldn't be here. For example, you know, almost everybody believes he was an actual person who lived some 2,000 years ago near and in the city of Jerusalem. Most people even believe that he was some sort of a prophet, some sort of spokesperson for God. And many people, even outside the Christian faith, believe that he had some sort of supernatural powers to heal the sick and perform miracles. Most people, at the very least around the globe, believe that Jesus was a great man, great teacher, great prophet, and had some supernatural powers of some sort. But once again, what do each of you believe about Jesus. Was he just a great teacher, a great prophet, miracle worker, or was he something more than that? You know, whenever I make a decision about something that's really important in my life, I do my homework, and one of the most important decisions I made two years ago was about a puppy dog, uh, because he'd be part of our life for the next 12 or 13 or so years, part of our family, and I was still grieving the death of our Chesapeake Bay Retriever, who I absolutely loved and who brought me through some really tough times. She was an exceptional hunting dog, and I knew I had to get another dog, but what dog could even come close to my beloved bear? Um, Found a breeder in Asco, Minnesota, a great breeder, by the way, uh, Kennel, and I wanted a chocolate lab because the most important thing about this dog, this puppy, was this. Would this dog be able to hunt? It's the most important thing. Now, this is a picture of my daughter's dog who can't hunt at all. Can't, can't do anything, really, quite worthless as far as I'm concerned. So I didn't want that. Uh, I wanted, a, I wanted a, a lab, and there were three males in the litter, and immediately my wife locked onto the biggest, most adorable chocolate lab we have ever seen. You guys are so easy. Just throw up a couple of puppies on the screen. But the attachment was immediate. But again, could he hunt? The other two were smaller, and after watching them for over an hour, we eliminated one puppy for sure. He was scrawny looking. He had fallen into the water dish, so he was all wet and shivering. Plus, my wife was already in love with the one she was holding. She said, Bob, this is the one. Look at him. I said, yeah, but, you know, he's got to pass the wing test. You know, the wing test is when you take a pheasant wing and you see how a dog reacts to it. Even at a puppy stage, you can kind of tell if they're excited about pheasants or not or ducks or not. And we were hoping that the big cuddly one would win the contest. So we brought him out on the grass. We waved the pheasant wing in front of him, and, he, and I tossed it a few feet away. He went over to it. He sniffed it and then walked away. I thought, whoa, that's a problem. Larry said, try it again, but this time he just laid down like he had no interest. Put him back in the pen. Brought out dog number two, and he showed a little more interest. He sniffed the wing. He actually picked it up. But then he dropped it and walked away. Put him back in the pen. 
brought out dog number three, the one we had already eliminated and did not want. I, I waved the wing in front of him and he lunged for it. I tossed it out a few feet and he pounced on it and he brought it right back to me. I had my wife hold him back a little bit and I dragged the pheasant wing through the grass about 30 feet, hit it in some uh, brush where he couldn't see it. She let him go and with his nose glued to the ground, he tracked it like a heat-seeking missile, found the wing and at six weeks old made a perfect retrieve. He was on fire. I put him back in the pen. I said, let's try this all over again with all three of them, same as before. The first two had no interest whatsoever, but the scrawny little one, the one we did not want, was all over it. I was so conflicted. I called my friend Scott. He's trained hundreds of dogs. I said, Scott, what do I do? He says, well, you got to take the one who chases the wing. I said, but my wife, she's in love with this other dog. He said, yeah, but is your wife going to hunt for you? <laughs> I said, probably not. So I said, there's your decision. Even the breeder tried to talk us out of dog number three, but I'm telling you, his innate desire to want to hunt was undeniable, so we brought him home. Yeah, I mean, in the next six months, he destroyed our house. <laughs> he put a strain on our marriage, but I'm telling you this dog, his name is Blue. He is a phenomenal hunter. His nose is incredible. He points instinctively. Labs aren't supposed to, supposed to do this, but if I've taken him through a field or whatever, he'll be, he'll be quartering the wind, and all of a sudden you go, Doo! and he'll just freeze. And it's like, it's automatic. It's almost unfair to the bird, because I know there's one, and he's just unbelievable. He has never missed a retrieve, and I absolutely love this dog. My wife thinks way too much, but I, I just love this dog. And my point is that any dog that I would welcome into my heart and into my home has to be the real thing, or he's not the dog for me. And gang, I'm telling you, when it comes to faith, when it comes to my eternal life and my life here on earth, it's the same with Jesus Christ. He has to have what I call undeniable credentials, Undeniable credentials. I mean, if Jesus was just a great man, great teacher and miracle worker, why would I follow him? Why would I put my full trust in him? Why would I invite him into my life and home if he was just a great teacher? I wouldn't. I would do what some of you do. I'd say, man, he's a great teacher, great prophet, great man. I'd even come to church a couple times a year with my kids to make sure they knew who he was, what he taught. But invite him into my daily life and home? Devote my entire life to following him and trusting him? Absolutely not. I would have to be convinced of his undeniable credentials. So let's talk about that for just a second today. Does Jesus Christ have the credentials for every one of us to follow him and trust him as Lord and Savior? Many of you know the story. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed. Mary Magdalene was Jesus' most famous female follower, and she believed about Jesus what some of you believe. He was a great man, great teacher, great prophet. She believed he was a miracle worker. She believed that he, he was from God, and unlike any other person she had ever met. But on Easter Sunday morning, she believed 
that Jesus was dead and that he was going to stay dead. She was there when they crucified him. After beating him just inches of his life, they nailed him on a cross and she was there when he suffocated and bled to death. She saw the Roman soldiers run a spear up through Jesus' ribs into his heart just to make sure he was dead, but he was already gone. She saw it happen. Now, generally, after a crucifixion like that, the body was removed from the cross and discarded in a dump outside of Jerusalem. But a man named Joseph of Arimathea begged for Jesus' body for proper burial. And so Joseph took Jesus' body and wrapped it in tightly in burial cloth, laid it in a tomb, and rolled a huge stone over it to keep the wild animals out and whatever else might want to intrude. So when Mary came to the tomb two days later on Easter Sunday morning, she was shocked to see the tomb was open. But she did not assume that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, when she saw the open tomb, the Bible says she came running back to Peter, James, and John and the other disciples And they, of course, were hiding away in a room, a locked room, because they were scared to death. They were depressed because the one they thought was the Messiah just got killed, crucified. And as friends of Jesus, they thought, you know, maybe we're going to be next. Maybe they're coming after us next. So where do we go? What do we do? We're certainly not going to hang out by his tomb. Those guys thought it was over. So Mary came running in to tell them, and this is so important for those of you who are here today kind of by accident. You know, for those of you who kind of got dragged here by a friend, and you just, finally I'll come, just get off my case, and so you're here, and you're like, okay. Or maybe Easter's kind of a tradition, you just kind of show up at church. This is so important what I'm about to say. Nobody was standing outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to come back to life. Nobody was. The men and women who traveled with him, ate with him, were healed by him, and watched him perform miracles. Not a single one of them was standing outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to rise. You know why? Because those who knew Jesus best believed what some of you do. They believed he was a great man. They believed he was a great teacher. They believed he was a prophet sent from God, a worker of miracles. They believed he was the wisest man they had ever met, but they believed he was dead and he was not coming back to life. Not a single person was standing outside the tomb waiting, expecting Jesus to rise. So Mary rushes back to the room where the 12 and others' disciples were hiding, and I want you to see what she says. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The only explanation for a missing body is that somebody stole it, not that there was a resurrection. Now, the gospel writer Luke also writes about these events that John has been recording, and Luke adds something that John leaves out, that it wasn't just Mary who visited the tomb that morning. There were two other women, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and they came running back to tell the disciples about the missing body. And I want you to see the disciples' reaction. But they did not believe the women. Typical men. Okay. They did not believe the women. Why? Because their words seemed to them as nonsense. Guys, that's what we do. It's women. Come on. 
What do you mean there's no body? What are you talking about? They did not jump to the conclusion that there was a resurrection. They thought it was nonsense. Now, now here's why the word nonsense is such an important word. Some of you think that a person coming back from the dead is absolute nonsense. And if you think that, I have some great news for you. The people who knew Jesus best, the people who heard him teach and saw him do miracles, also thought that the empty tomb was nonsense. They were not superstitious. They did not expect a resurrection. So if some of you think a resurrection is nonsense, of course you do. That's what level-headed people think. People don't come back to life. People don't come back to life after they've been beaten, crucified, fatally stabbed by a spear, drained of all their bodily fluids. People don't come back to life. Of course it's nonsense. Verse 12. Peter, however, <laughs> got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen, and he went away saying, he's alive. No, he didn't say that. He went away wondering to himself, what has happened? What happened? When Peter, and Peter's the guy, I mean, Peter's the guy, when he saw the empty tomb, he did not assume there was a resurrection. He believed about Jesus, what some of you do. Great man, great teacher, great prophet, worker of miracles, amazing humanitarian, humanitarian. and he believed, Peter did, that when Jesus died, he would stay dead, because that's what pe dead people do. They stay dead. But here's what you got to wrestle with. Everybody at all campuses, here's what you got to wrestle with. Jesus was dead. But something happened while the disciples were hiding away in a locked room, and I want you to see this account. Something happened. Jesus himself came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, they were startled. Of course they were. They were frightened thinking they saw a ghost. Why did they think they saw a ghost? Because dead people stay dead. But Jesus said, why do you have doubts? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he opened their minds to what the scriptures predicted, both Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus talked about this himself before the crucifixion. He said, remember when I told you, remember the scriptures, he told them that Christ would have to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and here's, this is so good, and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. All nations means you and me. All nations is us. And Jesus said to them, you are my witnesses of these things. The Bible says for the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to many different people at many different times in different situations. To Thomas, who wasn't in the room that moment when, he, when Jesus appeared. Thomas said, I will not believe this. I will not believe this unless I can see him face to face, touch his hands, see his feet. I love Thomas. He's a realist. I will not believe it. To Peter, Jesus appeared to Peter numerous times, James, John, all the others. He ate with them. He talked to them. He told them to take this message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to all nations. Gang, I'm telling you, the only reason that you and I are here today, the only reason 
that we even know the name of Jesus is because the eyewitnesses poured into the streets of Jerusalem and they did not say he was a great man, great teacher, great prophet. That's not what their message was. Their message was this, not that Jesus lived, but that he lives. That was their message. It was the undeniable credential. In fact, they were so vocal about this that the Jewish authorities ordered Peter and John to shut up. Quit talking about this man, Jesus. And Peter, you remember Peter, who before the crucifixion denied even knowing who Jesus was to little, little girls. He was running like a coward, running for cover before the resurrection. But now he stands in front of this crowd, in front of these authorities, and look what he says. Judge for yourselves. Do what you want to me. But we can't help speaking about what we have heard and seen. Where'd Peter get his courage? He's saying, we're not telling you something we, we simply believe. We're telling you something we have seen. I'm telling you, gang, the wing test of all wing tests isn't that Jesus lived. It's that he lives. And the reason thousands of us have gone from just admiring Jesus as a great teacher, great prophet, to being worshipers of him. From going from thinking he's just a great teacher and miracle worker to acknowledging him as our savior isn't only because the Bible says it, but it's because Peter and James, John, Mary, Matthew, Mark, 500 others saw Jesus rise from the dead and they ate with him, and they spoke to him, and they touched his resurrected body. And in that moment, something shifted. They crossed the line from simply respecting who Jesus is and thinking he's a great guy and great teacher. They moved from just admiring him to, here's the word, to trusting him as their Savior and their God. And I just wonder today, how about for some of you? What would it take for some of you to move from just, you know, respecting him, admiring him as a great teacher, great prophet, miracle worker? What would it take to get you to move from that to acknowledging him and worshiping him as your savior, your redeemer? Your God. What would it take for you to invite Jesus into your life and home? Not as an idea, not as a philosophy, but as your Savior and God. What credential would do it for you? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, but Bob, I have all kinds of doubts about this. How can I trust something that happened 2,000 years ago? And I totally get that. I've had doubts in my life about all kinds of stuff all the way through my, my life. You know, career choice. I had all kinds of doubts about that. Grad school, should I go to grad school? Marriage, I mean, who knows? You know, should we marry this person? Having kids, huge doubts. And the more important something was in my life, the more doubts I had. But if you wait, if you wait for all your doubts to go away, you'd never do anything in life. You'd never get married. You'd certainly not have kids. I mean, not in a million years. Why would you have kids if you, you know, if you have doubts? You have doubts about kids all the time. You'd never get on an airplane, at least I wouldn't. 
Airplanes scare me to death. I have doubts every time I walk up, but I still go. I still go. Because at some point, you got to make a decision based on the evidence and information that you have. And I want to touch on two reasons, real briefly, why putting your full trust in Jesus Christ matters so much. Two reasons. Number one is this. Our sins can be forgiven. Such a great truth. Do you live in this reality? Do you live freely from sin? Sins can be forgiven. Several times during Jesus' ministry, he said to somebody, your sins are forgiven, and that amazing thing would happen. They would be set free, and they'd live a new, new life. Gang, what if you knew that you could leave here today, every one of you, what if you could know, knew, know that you could leave here today forgiven of everything and anything you've ever done. Anybody here wish you could be forgiven of something that you regret? Maybe for losing your temper with your son or daughter, and you just regret it. Maybe for offending a coworker, and you just so regret damaging that relationship. Maybe for giving into someone you barely knew. And then you did it again and again. And there's so much regret around that. Maybe for losing the trust of your spouse and you wish you could do it over again and renew the relationship. Maybe it's losing the faith of your family. Gang, what if you knew? What if you knew that you could be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed and get a brand new start today. You know, whenever I talk about this with people, somebody always inevitably says, but Bob, I don't need God's forgiveness. I'm a good person, better than most. I don't need God's forgiveness. You know, last year uh, at the Global Leadership Summit, my good friend Bill Hybels was talking about the gap that we all have between us and God. And I want you to see this video because it really illustrates our need for forgiveness. Watch real quick. Okay, so uh, I was sitting on an airplane next to a guy one time, and the guy finds out I'm a pastor. That's everyone's worst nightmare. So <laughs> he, he, he said, hey, uh, after he found out I was a pastor, he, he said, hey, we don't need to talk about religion because I'm good with God. I said, hey, I'm glad you're good with God. I'm not a very good preacher, and so the fact that we don't have to cover this is, is good with me. And he goes, good, because I'm pretty sure I'm good with God. I go, well then, okay, fine. And a few minutes later, he goes, you know, I go to church twice a year, I give some money at the end of the year, decent dad, I work hard, I vote Republican, I, I think I'm good, aren't I? <laughs> I said, listen, if you're gonna keep talking about it, do you have any interest in what the Bible actually says makes you good with God? He goes, well, I got some time to kill, go ahead. So <laughs> I took out a piece of paper, just wrote God at the top, reminded that God is perfect, absolutely holy, okay? And then I drew a vertical line like this. So I said to the guy, hey, uh, you're, you're telling me that you're good and you're good with God. Are, do you mean that if this is a vertical line of how moral and wonderful and spiritual and you know, upstanding you are, are you about this good? Like just bumping your head up against the perfection of God? <laughs> and he goes, well, you know. And I said, well, let's talk about good people. And Mother Teresa was alive at that point. And, 
And I said, who's the best person you know? He said, probably Mother Teresa. And I said, I've read everything she's ever written. And she says in her writings that she has deep regrets and she's disappointed God. She mouthed off to a couple of her superiors. She got in some fights with some of her sisters. And she, I said, I don't know for sure, but I think if Mother Teresa were going to put an X on where she is on this goodness ladder, I said, I think Mother Teresa would like put herself down here somewhere. I said, who else is good? And he said, well, maybe Billy Graham. I said, I actually met him a couple times. He does not carry a picture of me around in his wallet. But I, I said, I, he asked me one time to pray for him because he felt that he had disappointed God in, in some way. And I said, he's a very humble guy. I don't know for sure. I think he'd put himself on this vertical space a little lower than Mother Teresa, perhaps. Now, quick time out, uh, real time now. Any of you read what Pope Francis did the moment he found out, the new pope, do you read what, what he said the minute he found out he was going to be the next pope? Direct quote, I am a very sinful man that God has looked kindly upon. The pope, okay? <laughs> so maybe, you know, Pope Francis is, you know, somewhere. <laughs> so then I tell this guy, I go, uh, you know, I've been a pastor for several decades, and I would put myself, you know, south of Billy Graham. So if, if this is that whole goodness thing, I gave him a pen, and I said, put yourself anywhere you want on here. <laughs> so he puts himself just a little beneath me right there. <laughs> so then he goes, am I in trouble? <laughs> I said, well, here's the deal. If God's perfect, you see, you have a gap. You have a gap. And I said, here's the deal. And this is an amazing thing. God sees your gap and loves you anyway. And what God did was God provided his son, Jesus Christ. I said, no, this only take a second. But what God did is he took all of your garbage and mine and all this, and he transferred all of our wrongdoings under the shoulders of Jesus Christ, who died an atoning death for the sins of the world. And then he infuses his righteousness into our lives. And if you can believe this, he puts us in right standing with God. He puts us in right standing with God. So we all have this gap. I've got a huge gap. I'm a sinner. I, I am in need of God's forgiveness every single day. I can't work for my salvation or forgiveness. Look what the Bible says. Everyone who believes in him, Jesus, everyone who believes in him, not just thinks he existed, believes, trusts, receives forgiveness of sin through his name. You know, Jesus' death was the supreme payment for the sins of the world. Only the perfect son of God could take your sins and mine on a cross. That was the payment for your sins and mine. And whoever believes in him receives that free gift of forgiveness because of what Christ did on the cross. So that's the first reason trust in Christ is so, so important today. The second reason, real quickly, why trusting Jesus matters so much is our death can be defeated. You know, the Bible says death is our final enemy. We all have a date. All of us. We're going to die one day. 
And I'm reminded of that almost every single day. Real quickly, ever since I got new glasses six years ago, they've been crooked. It drives me insane. So I've taken them to numerous optometrists. No one's been able to straighten them out. But four weeks ago, my wife and I were at Sam's Club in the checkout line, and I noticed a big sign over there that said optical. So I thought, I'm going to run over there real quick and see if somebody can fix my glasses. You know, Sam's Club. But I ran over, and a guy named Fu was working the counter. I walked up to him. I said, these have been crooked for six years. Nobody's been able to fix them. And he said, well, let me look straight at me. And he took my glasses. He said, I'll be right back. So Fu goes off, and he comes back three minutes later. I put them on. I, they're perfect. I said, Fu, you're amazing. How did you do that? He laid my glasses upside down on the counter. He said, now look how one side doesn't lay flat on the table. He said, that's because your right ear is lower than your left ear. They're uneven. I never knew that. I never knew my ears were crooked. Now you're all going to be looking at my ears. But I shook his hand. I said, Foo, you're a genius. I ran back to my wife, and she was still checking stuff out. I said, Laura, Foo over there, fix my glasses. And he said, the problem is my ears are uneven. Now the cashier was taking this whole thing, and without even looking up, she said, maybe you need to fix your ears. I thought, She's dead serious. I, I said, well, just to humor her, I said, well, where do I do that? She said, probably a plastic surgeon. I thought I was in the twilight zone talking to this cashier about my ears. But that's not the only thing wrong with me. Look at my eyes. I mean, the older I get, the farther they sink into my skull. <laughs> it's very soon. You're not going to be able to see any of my eyes at all. And I might have a slight, slight hair loss problem. And my hearing is bad. And friends, I used to be five foot ten. I am now five foot eight and three quarters. I am shrinking and dying before your very eyes. I know. Somebody's sympathetic over here. Truth is, death is a problem. And what's your plan? What's your plan? It's a real problem. We don't like to talk about it. Jesus defeated death so that our death can be defeated. Look what he says. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, there's that phrase again, whoever believes in me will live even after they die. And when he said believes in me, he didn't mean believe I'm a great teacher, believe I'm a great prophet. What he meant was those who believe in me choose to trust me as their savior. There's a choice. There's a decision that every person has to make to trust him as the one who died for your sins and overcame death so that your sins can be forgiven and your death can be defeated. And if you haven't made the choice to trust Jesus, I wonder if you'll do that today. Will you? Will you ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins? Will you ask him to heal you? So many of you have deep wounds that Maybe even weren't your fault, but they're there. And Jesus Christ, the one who made you and knows you and died to save you, can heal you. If you'll just let him in and begin trusting him with your life. 
I made that choice a long time ago when I was a little boy to put my full trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, God, and friend. He's been with me all life long. He guides me. He gives me whatever strength I have to come up and stand in front of you guys. Every single day, he's with me. My wife has made that choice. My adult children have made that choice, and their spouses have made that choice. Best decision we've ever made. And understand, I am not talking about having a religion. I'm talking about having a relationship with the God who made you and the God who knows every single thing about you, good and bad, and the God who loves you anyway and sent his son Jesus to close the gap. In a minute, I'm going to pray with all of you at all all campuses, but again, it's Easter, and I just want to ask the question one more time. What do you believe about Jesus? If you haven't done it already, are you willing to declare today Easter 2016, that he is your Savior, he is your God, the one you'll worship and trust. Are you willing to do that? Why not go all the way? Why not cross the line and ask the risen Christ, the living Lord, into your life so that sins can be forgiven and death can be defeated? So at all campuses, I'm just going to ask everybody to bow your heads, close your eyes, just Nothing spiritual about that. Just eliminate some distractions. So if you just do that, all can't. Just stay seated real quickly. This will just take a couple minutes. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for loving us just the way we are. But you don't want to leave us the way we are. You want us to experience forgiveness. You want us to experience new life here on earth. Life that's filled with a new kind of love and a new kind of joy and a new kind of peace that the world can't give. And so right now, right here, I want to lead those of you in a prayer who are ready to receive Jesus as your Savior and God. I'm going to lead you in a brief prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can just sit there and quietly, between you and God, he knows your heart. If you agree with this prayer and and just breathe this prayer to God quietly, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can receive the promise of eternal life, life after death, and a new life here on earth. This is your day. The prayer goes something like this. Pray it with me quietly. Lord Jesus, that's me. I am a sinner, and I don't have a plan to break out of death. But I've been told today, and I agree, that you are the one who paid for my sins on a cross. And I agree that you died and rose again so that I one day will die but rise again. So, Lord Jesus, right now, right here, I am putting my full trust in you, not as a great teacher, great prophet, or miracle worker, but I am putting my full trust in you as my Savior and my God. Forgive me of my sins. Heal my heart. God, make me whole again. 
Thank you for saving me in this moment, for forgiving me in this moment. From this day forward, I will try to worship you and follow you all the days of my life. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 30 seconds, all campuses. If you prayed that prayer, way to go. This is why I live. This is why I do what I do. I love you people. I don't know most of you. But nothing better in my life than trying to help people enter a relationship with the God who made you, loves you. If you prayed that prayer, all campuses, a couple of things, you have options. One is to stop by at the next step area in our lobbies. We want to give you some resources. It's not enough, you know, just, just don't pray the prayer, but we got to help you get started in, in walking and following with Christ. Or you can actually text, they tell me. You can use a text deal, I guess. So just go believe 555-888, and we'll send you some resources. all free. We're not going to bother you, but we just, we, we want to help you get started in your new journey with Christ. Hey, gang, it's been a great day. Happy, happy Easter to all of you. God bless you.